Please take your Bibles and turn with me to Luke 9. Luke 9 in your Bibles. Title of the sermon, He Is or He Is Not. Talking this evening about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. The identity of Jesus of Nazareth. If you've listened to me for any length of time, then you've heard me talk about the paradoxes in Christianity. Things which seem to contradict or seem to function contrary to human nature experience, but are nonetheless true according to God's design. What we find as we walk through our text today is that the foundation of our faith in these paradoxes is nothing more or less than the essence, quality, and character of Jesus Christ as God in flesh. That the fact that we recognize these paradoxes, that we believe that these things which seem so paradoxical are indeed true, the foundation of that is that Jesus Christ is God in flesh. If Jesus is anything less than the eternal God, then everything that defines spiritual success becomes fruitless and ultimately worthless. And what we'll see today is that Jesus is who he says he is. And then we're going to talk about whether or not we believe this, whether or not others believe this, and some ways to understand what it means to believe that Jesus is who he is. So we pick up in our text today in Luke 9, beginning in verse 18, and the Bible says this, And it came to pass, as he was alone praying, his disciples were with him, and he asked them, saying, Whom say the people that I am? So Jesus was alone Playing, praying, excuse me. Uh, this is something our Lord quite regularly did and might well function as an example, not just to his disciples of the day, but to us as well. Jesus is praying alone, the text tells us, but his disciples are with him. This is not some sort of a, a strange contradiction that somehow people just let go as they read the text. Uh, much to the contrary, Jesus is alone, they are alone. Uh, he is praying alone, and yet his disciples are there. He's praying They are in his presence. It would seem as though several other things took place between what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in uh, the feeding of the 5,000 and this account, even though they're contiguous in the book of Luke. uh, If we look at some of the other Gospels, it seems likely that there were other events taking place uh, between these two events in the book of Luke. And it's kind of difficult to know what Jesus might have been thinking here. He's praying uh, unto the Father, and then uh, going through his mind is something... But whatever that is, it inspires a question. And that question is simply, whom say the people that I am? What is the general consensus among the people regarding me? Now, we've already received some insight into this from the beginning of Luke 9. Recall Herod uh, had heard of Jesus and he was wondering about the identity of Jesus. So he asks his followers, his people, who is this man? And his people say that he is perhaps John, perhaps Elijah, or perhaps some other prophet risen from the dead. Herod gets quite interested in meeting Jesus. He's curious as to this Jesus of Nazareth. And we see a very similar answer from Jesus' disciples in verse 19. They answered and said, John the Baptist, but some say Elias, and others say one of the old prophets is risen again. Now this is important, because Jesus is going to paint a contrast here, right? Who do they say I am? 
Who do you say I am? And this is important because as we understand it, this is going to help us recognize that they do not believe that Jesus is the Christ. The majority of the people, the people at large do not believe that Jesus is Messiah. They believe he's a good prophet. They believe he's a prophet of old. They believe he's a reincarnated prophet or a risen prophet, uh, something to that effect. But they don't believe that he is God in flesh. And that's a problem, right? They don't believe that he is God in flesh. And this is going to be used to show a definitive difference, to put a line in the sand between one group and another group. And we'll see that as we continue. So in verse 20, we read this. He said unto them, but whom say ye that I am? Peter answering said, the Christ of God. Here we have one of those instances where the King James uses the pronoun ye and your rather than thee and thou. And this really helps us. Recall that in the King James Version, when you read a you, a your, or a ye, uh, it's a second person plural pronoun underneath, both in the Greek and the Hebrew, as well as in many other languages. Uh, the second person pronoun, uh, talking to someone else, you, your, uh, is broken up into a singular and a plural. As a matter of fact, in the, the Greek just prior to Koine Greek, there were actually typically three. There was a single, a dual, and a plural. So uh, if you're speaking to one person, it would be singular. If you're speaking to two people, it would be a dual. And then if you're speaking to more than two people, it would be a plural. By the time koine comes around, there's only uh, effectively singular and plural, that you're either speaking to one person or you're speaking to multiple people. And the King James uh, translators decided that they wanted to help the reader understand which was being spoken of, because it's important in many places. We're not going to go to those places today where we see how this really is important, but if you've ever had a pastor uh, get up and say, hey, I found out that this is speaking to one person or, or, or two people, and he gleaned that from his study in the Greek or study in the Hebrew, all you have to do is read your Bible and you'll find it. It'll be there because it's reflected in the translation. And that's why they used thee and thou. That's why they used ye and your in order to distinguish between the two. So we know that Jesus is asking the group here, whom do, whom say ye that I am? And Peter answered and said, the Christ of God. It is only Peter answering here, and he says, you are the Christ. Now, the word Christ in the Greek literally means anointed. It is the Greek word that is the same as the Hebrew word anointed, which is Messiah. Found 38 times in the Old Testament. And the concept of an anointed in the Old Testament can speak of many different people. It can speak of... Um, the king, such as David or Saul. It can speak of prophets. It can even speak to, and it does speak in Lamentations chapter 4, verse 20, it speaks about Cyrus, the king of Persia, who would one day be the Lord's anointed to allow Israel back into the land after their captivity. But it's really in Daniel 9 where the concept of Messiah goes from simply being a description to being an identity. It goes from being someone that the Lord has chosen to use to the one that God has chosen, the one that has been spoken of throughout all of the Old Testament as being the one who would come. All throughout the Old Testament, God promised that he would deliver the nation of Israel from their enemies. 
He's called my servant in Isaiah 52, 13. He's called God's shepherd in Ezekiel 34, 23. He's called the son of righteousness in Malachi 4, 2. Uh, we could go through identity after identity after identity after identity. He's the seed of the woman. He's the seed of David. Uh, we see it all throughout the Old Testament from Genesis 3, 15 when it's promised to Adam and Eve all the way through to Malachi 4. And it's in Daniel 9 that the title is established specifically and definitively Messiah, that there would be an anointed one. And it's important to understand that in all these cases, the one whom God would send was explicitly said to be God himself. Now, we don't see it in each case. We don't see in each case that this one will be God. But as we put all of the pieces together, we understand without question that this one would be God. And this is often a question that's asked. Were the Jews supposed to know that Jesus would be God? Were the Jews supposed to know that Jesus would be the one, uh, or, or excuse me, that Messiah would be God? That Messiah would be uh, God in flesh? Indeed, yes. Yes, they were to know that. It's made quite clear in Isaiah 9, verses 6 and 7. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. There's a promise here that there would be a child born, someone born in the flesh, right? A human child would be born, and that child's name, as we see the various names given, the mighty God, the everlasting Father. This child, this human, would also be God, God in flesh. Human, God, God in flesh, the Word of God incarnate. So it is understood, or it should be understood, that the Jews should recognize their Messiah to be one who would be called God, who would be called the Father, who would be God in flesh. So when Peter acknowledges that Christ, that Jesus is the Christ of God, he is acknowledging that Jesus is greater than John, he's greater than the other prophets, he's greater than Elijah, that this is the one, the anointed, the, the promised one. And this is a big deal. To sell out to the identity of Jesus as Christ, to say, no, Jesus, I don't believe that you're just a good man. I don't believe that you're just a good prophet. You are who you say you are. You are the Christ. You are the Messiah who has come. To believe this, to sell out to the confidence that Jesus would do everything that God said Messiah would do, that he's the one that would save them from their sins, that he's the one that would defeat their enemies, that he's the one that would overcome death, that he is the one that would establish a kingdom. That's a really big deal. And this is effectively the extent to which Luke covers the issue. We read in verse 21, and he, that's Jesus, straightly charged them. And commanded them to tell no man that thing. Jesus commands them that they should tell no man this thing, his identity. Now it's interesting, uh, the word used here, straightly charged, is used 21 times in the New Testament in the Greek, but only five times it's translated to charge. 
And each time it's found in the context of Jesus telling people not to reveal his identity. It was a stern warning, not just a request. He says, don't tell people about this. We've considered on several occasions some of the theories as to why Jesus might do this, especially in the book of Luke. But in this case, things are just a bit different. See, usually Jesus is telling men or demons not to tell others of his miracles, perhaps because he wanted to be seen as more than just a miracle worker, or maybe because of the undue publicity that would bring about hostility. But in this case, he tells them not to tell others that he is the Christ. Why? Well, we don't have any definite reason. It is perhaps because in declaring himself to be Messiah, he would incur that undue hostility too early in his ministry. It is perhaps because of how misguided the people's concept was of the Christ and what he would be here to do. If they believe that by him being the Christ, that means without question that he is going to overthrow the Roman Empire, well, then that's a problem, right? That they're going to go around saying the Christ has come and people are going to say, all right, let's let's rise up. Let's start an uprising. Let's start the great revolt against the Roman Empire, which is certainly not what Jesus came to do. The Jews were convinced that Messiah existed exclusively to usher in God's physical deliverance. And indeed, the Jews are still convinced that Messiah is going to come and usher in exclusively a physical kingdom, a physical deliverance. They think that spiritually they're fine. All they need is physical deliverance. To declare Jesus to be the Christ outside of the context of his teaching might do more to confuse than to help. Perhaps that's why. That theory is somewhat substantiated by the next verse where Jesus says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. In light of what we have considered, we might see verse 22 as explanatory. That Jesus is explaining why they need to be discreet in their declaration of Jesus as the Messiah. Because in this identity of Him as the Messiah, as that identity unfolds itself, it's going to compel the chief priests and the scribes and the elders to kill him. And this idea will carry with us into the next teaching of Jesus, which we will address in just a moment. But before we do so, before we leave this individual instance, I would like for us to head over to Matthew for a moment and dig a little bit deeper into this account. We see some things in Matthew that we don't find in any of the other Gospels uh, as related to this inquiry, whom say men that I am, whom say ye that I am. And we read a familiar part in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 16. Uh, These four verses are practically identical to what we've already read in Luke. Jesus asks, whom say men that I am? Uh, You're some prophet. Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, was Peter's answer. But it's in verse 17 that things get a little bit different. Uh, We continue, and the Bible says in Matthew 16, verses 17 to 19, And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee... The keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he says here, thou art Peter, you are Petros. 
Peter, the name that Jesus gave to him, the name that Jesus called him, his actual name was Simon Bar-Jonah. But Jesus had given him the name Peter. Now, as Peter continues to live, he, he assumes uh, the name Peter almost exclusively. So that by the time we reach the Gospels, he is no longer Simon, he is Peter. But in order that he might still function uh, according to his Hebrew roots, he actually takes on the Hebrew name Cephas, which also means stone, just like Peter, only it's the Hebrew word. So when you see Cephas in the New Testament, it's speaking of Peter, and they use Cephas instead of Simon because uh, Peter has assumed entirely this new identity that has been given to him by Jesus, so that effectively Simon, yes it was his birth name, but it's no longer his name. His name is Peter, and if you want to call him by uh, a Hebrew title, then you Cephas, which keeps the meaning intact of stone. Now, this passage has been interpreted a number of ways throughout history. It's one of the key passages in Roman Catholic tradition to try to prove that Jesus, or excuse me, that Peter is the first pope, that he has the keys to the kingdom, and that he is the rock upon which the church would be built, and so now Peter is the pope, and he has the keys to the kingdom, which means he can confer upon a person salvation, or he can withhold from a person salvation because the, the kingdom of God, and so... Peter is that first pope and each subsequent pope afterwards has apostolic authority and has the privilege and the right to have the keys to the kingdom as well. And there's just one problem with their theory, these claims, and that's that none of it's in the Bible. That's a big problem. We can't even definitively prove that Peter ever went to Rome much less that he founded the church there, much less he was ever some pope there, the head of some church there. And you would think that if God wanted to establish papal succession and apostolic authority, that he would make it pretty clear in the Bible. You'd think that the other Gospels might have the same account. I mean, if this was for something more than just looking at, uh, at a Jewish element, a Jewish perspective, which is what Matthew's for then you'd think that Mark, or at least Luke, the most thorough of the Gospels, or perhaps John, the treatise on salvation, on belief and unbelief, you'd think one of those would have this important concept that says, oh, by the way, while you're believing in the Lord Jesus Christ to be saved, just know that there's this one man in Rome who can confer or not that salvation upon you. And so God doesn't really work this way especially if it were his design to give some mythical future pope the authority to confirm and withhold heavenly bliss, you'd think that it would be a little bit more clear in Scripture. But it's not, because that's not true. But the question has troubled interpreters for generations, wondering what it means that Peter uh, will have the keys to the kingdom and exactly what is the rock upon which Christ would build his church. Before we consider a few interpretive possibilities, it should not be lost on us that this little bit of extra information, as I mentioned just in passing already, is found exclusively in the book of Matthew. It's found only in the book written to the Jews, written to prove Jesus as Messiah. We know that that book of Matthew was written specifically for this purpose, to prove that Jesus is the rightful king of the Jews. Mark, Luke, and John each had uh, significantly different purposes to their writing and a different audience. And to this end, we can assume that for whatever reason Matthew put this in the text and Luke, Mark, Luke, and John omitted it, it is because this particular passage is intended to 
be important specifically to Jewish believers. And again, immediately that would cause us to question the Roman Catholic interpretation, right? As that would certainly not just be a Jewish ideal. Now, the common understanding of Jesus' words in Orthodox or conservative circles such as ours could follow a couple of different paths. Some believe that it is not Peter that is the rock upon which the church would be built, but rather that Peter's confession is the rock upon which the church would be built. I have no particular issue with this interpretation other than that it's not the most natural way to read the text. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock, upon this rock, he says, I will build my church. And the this most naturally correlates to Peter. And they say, well, the this is probably actually correlating to thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Again, it's possible. It's not grammatically impossible, but it's not as grammatically likely. I'm comfortable with it, however. And I don't think that there's anything uh, naturally wrong with the idea that Jesus Christ will build his kingdom, that he will build his church, excuse me, on this statement, on this claim that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And in fact, as we continue to look in the text, there's lots of reasons why that makes sense. Uh, but there also is perhaps less cause to dismiss the fact that Peter is the rock upon which Christ would build the church. For two reasons. First, because as we look at the, ne- the, the continued passage here, Upon, uh, given to Peter is the privilege of the keys to the kingdom. Whatsoever would be bound would be bound in heaven. Whatsoever would be loosed would be loosed in heaven. And so it is that we can't necessarily just dismiss Peter outright as not being the rock upon which Christ would build the church because of this next phrase, that he would be given the keys to the kingdom. Now take note in verse 17 that here um, we... Uh, have a transition from ye and your to thee and thou. That Christ says, whom do men say that I am? Whom do ye say that I am? To thou art Peter. He's speaking specifically to Peter and only to Peter here. And he says, unto you, Peter, I will give the keys of the kingdom. Peter got some sort of privilege here. He was given a privilege here. And what was that privilege? Well, again, there's not complete consensus as to what it means that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. But may I give you my theory? May I give you what I believe that means? We transition to the book of Acts and we find that Peter is the apostle who speaks on the day of Pentecost. And on that day, of course, the Holy Spirit uh, falls, manifests himself, fills the believers. He empowers them on that day. And... There is a general understanding that, that there's something new happening. This is the, um, the fulfillment of the prophecies of Joel about the last days and what would happen in the last days with the tongues of fire. And so as we understand that, as we look at that, we recognize that this was intended to be a sign that God was working in the last days. And this was 
how God was working. And so the church is now God's instrument, right? We know that because they're speaking in tongues. We know that because the Holy Spirit fell. And this assures the Jews, this assures the Jews that there's a transition happening from the temple and the Old Testament sacrificial system to this new way called the church. But it's interesting to note that while there were men and women believing in Samaria and in the Gentile world, the Holy Spirit had not yet fallen on them. And so we fast forward a little bit in the text to Acts 8. Why is it that the Holy Spirit did not fall on the Samaritans or Gentiles at the moment that the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost? It only fell upon the Jews. And the church was exclusively Jewish for that first little while. Then Philip goes up to Samaria and he begins to preach the gospel. And the Bible says the Samaritans begin to believe. And Philip, uh, he, he sends down to Jerusalem to the church there. And he says, look, Samaritans are believing. And so Peter and John in Acts 8 are sent up to Samaria to validate this. And the Bible says that when they validated that these men and women were being baptized in the name of Jesus and believing on Jesus, then they laid their hands on them and they prayed and the Holy Spirit fell on them as well. And so now the Holy Spirit fell on the Jews at Pentecost with Peter preaching the sermon and the Holy Spirit fell onto the Samaritans in Acts 8 while uh, Peter and John pray over them. And then we get to Acts 10 and we learn about the Gentile world through a man named Cornelius. And Cornelius is praying and God tells to him, go get Peter and he has a message for you. Peter, all the meanwhile, is having a vision. And he sees a vision of unclean animals. And in the vision, God tells him to eat those. And Peter says, no, I can't do that. They're unclean. And God says, what I've called clean, don't call unclean. Then Cornelius' servants come and Peter gets it. He realizes, okay, that now it's time for the Gentile world. So he goes to the Gentile world. He goes to Cornelius. And, and he... Uh, talks to Cornelius. Cornelius is a believer. He believes this stuff. And Peter is preaching the gospel. And as he preaches the gospel, the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell on the Gentiles. And so we see three instances. The Jews, the Samaritans, and the Gentiles. Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. And in all three instances, Peter is there to validate the Holy Spirit falling upon them. So that there is one man, one representative, the disciple of Jesus Christ named Peter, who is the one who can validate Validate the working of God through the Spirit in each of these three people groups. And why was this so important? Well, because false teaching would have been prevalent, even in that day, right? How would you know if these people were being genuine? How would we know if these people were actually working? How could the Jews know, seeing as though God has been working through the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, for a couple of thousand years, how could then the Jews know and be confident that this transition is taking place and now the Samaritans and the Gentiles are allowed to be a part of the church, not just the Jews. Well, that's Peter's job. The keys to the kingdom. What he bound in heaven would be bound on earth. Excuse me, on earth would be bound in heaven. What, what he loosed on earth would be loosed in heaven. He had that authority for this first generation. And that's what I believe it means that Peter was given the keys to the kingdom. Are there some possible objections? Yes, there are. It's somewhat vague. But it makes sense to me. As Peter was there to validate each of these transitions. And that would have been so important to the Jewish believers to help them transition their understanding from Israel and the temple to the church, which is now open to Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles.
And that brings us back to Luke 9, where we continue reading in verses 23 and 24. I'll give you a moment to turn there. Luke 9, verses 23 and 24, we read this. And he said unto them all, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. Jesus then delivers uh, this discipleship paradox. Jesus has extracted from Peter this declaration that he is the Christ, the Son of God. And notice the contrast. Men say, I'm just a good man, I'm a good prophet. You say, I am the Christ, I am the Messiah. And now Jesus is saying, and there's a big difference between them who believe I'm just a good man and you who believe I am Messiah. There's a big difference between the man who just accepts me as a prophet or as a teacher or worse, and the man who has accepted me as Messiah. And this difference is what Jesus is saying here. The person who thinks Jesus is a great prophet or good teacher will listen to him, will glean what makes sense, will take advantage of the benefits, but the man who knows Jesus to be Messiah, the Son of God, will die to self that he may live unto the gospel. And here's where the paradox comes in. Jesus says that the true follower of his way, the one who would truly accept Christ for who he is, is the one who will take up his cross and who will follow him. The one who is willing to give up his ambition, to to give up his way and follow Jesus' way. The one who is willing to believe on faith that Jesus is who he is, regardless. So Jesus says, if you truly want to save your life, if you truly want to lay hold upon eternal life, you're going to have to die to your own way. Die to your own will. Die to your own desires. Die to your own ambition. You're going to have to take up the cross and follow Christ. But if we hang on, if we cling to our lives, our ideas, our notions... If we regard Jesus just as that good teacher, that great man, that worthy prophet, or perhaps inconsequential in some other way, well, Jesus says that you'll actually lose your life. You'll miss the boat. As John recorded the teachings of Jesus... In the same passage, he adds something really beautiful and profound. In John 12, 24, we read this, Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. A grain of wheat cannot bear fruit until it has first died. It grows up, it's beautiful, it's green, it dries out, it dies, it falls to the ground, and then when it falls to the ground, it sprouts. And that one grain becomes a whole stalk. That one grain becomes multitudes. The springing up out of the dead grain brings forth abundant life. So too in every context from salvation to sanctification, fruit is born only in those who are first willing to die to self and to live unto Christ. And that is what bears the fruit. 
Jesus says, the man who's going to just stand on himself, claim me to be a good prophet, just a good man, that man has not died to self. And so he won't bear fruit unto salvation. But the man who's ready to die, who's ready to take me at my word, who's ready to accept me for who I am and die to self and live unto me, that man will gain his life. He'll bear fruit unto salvation. Jesus then asks a question in verse 25. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What advantage is there for the man who gains all the things material but loses himself? What good will it do you to gain everything the world has to offer at the expense of your eternity? If Jesus is God, if He is our Creator and He has died on the cross to bear our sins, and if God has designed victory and success to be rooted in death to self, then there is no logical advantage of living to, for myself for 60 to 70 years only then to lose eternity. And make no mistake, you can't have them both. You can't love the world and love God at the same time as per the definition of the world in 1 John 2. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and pride of life. You can't have that and have God. You can have things. You can have a house and cars and have God. But you can't love the world and love God. You can't have them both. Now it's important to understand our context here. There are times when Jesus warns his apostles about loving the world in the context of just being a disciple of one who has accepted Christ but needs to live it. And then there are times where Jesus is teaching in regard to salvation, talking about what it takes to become a follower of Christ. And this is one of those times. And how do we know that? Because of the contrast that Jesus painted in verses 18 through 22. Because he said, whom do men say that I am? I'm just a good prophet. Who do you say that I am? You're the son of God. You are the Christ. Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. That's the right answer. And by the way, because these people don't believe on me, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to be risen again. They're going to reject me because the fruit of just believing Jesus is a good man is rejection of Jesus. That's, that's where that goes. You have a person that says, oh, I believe Jesus was a good man, a good prophet. Do you know what that means? That means they have positioned themselves to reject Jesus. That's all that means. The people that hung Jesus on a cross, the people that yelled crucify him, those people believed Jesus was a good man and a good prophet until he offended their sensibilities. And so Jesus is painting a contrast here between the one who thinks he's just a good man and so he's keeping the world and he's losing himself and those that say thou art the Christ, the son of the living God and they have died to self and they've gained eternal life. And so Jesus continues in verse 26, For whosoever shall be ashamed of me and my words, of him shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he shall come in his own glory and in his Father's and of the holy angels. The natural contrast excuse me, to the man who has chosen to take up his cross and to follow Christ is the one who is ashamed of Jesus. A sense of shame is one of the most powerful cultural emotions which we have as humans. The idea that our understanding of how we will perceive influences our willingness to make those beliefs of ours known. That others might perceive us wrongly and so we're going to deny what we believe. In the case of Christ, it is contrasted with denying, with, excuse me, with dying to self and acknowledging Jesus' identity for what it is. 
We'll talk more about that in our application. But Jesus is not heaping up individual expectations. He is speaking of the same attitude toward Christ, which will manifest itself in various ways. That the, the, the one who just believes Jesus is the good man, who just believes that Jesus is the good prophet, uh, this is one who is positioning himself to be ashamed of Christ. To be ashamed of who Jesus Christ claims to be. To be ashamed of the identity that Jesus Christ is. But the one who has accepted him as the Christ will not be ashamed. To claim him for who he is. And he warns that if we're ashamed either of him and his words, he will be ashamed of us on the day of his return. That he will disavow those who have disavowed him. And then he gives one more statement. Another statement of controversy in verse 27. We'll talk about it and then we'll get to our application. But I tell you of a truth, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the kingdom of God. Jesus is speaking again to the group, and we know this from the pronoun ye, right? It's back to ye, so he's speaking to the whole group. There are three prevailing theories as to what the, this idea or what, what this is, what it means that there will be some there who will not die until they see the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God, and who were these ones that would not die until they saw the kingdom of God. And the reason why this is such a controversy is because Jesus Christ has not yet ushered in his kingdom, has he? And I guarantee you, all 12 of the men, at least 12 there that day, everybody that was there that day is dead. Except for Jesus. And he did die. He rose again. Everyone else is dead. They're all in the grave. And so, was Jesus wrong here? Or what did he mean by the kingdom of God? Well, some think Jesus was speaking of the fall of the Jewish state in the beginning of the church. Those are typically the replacement theologians, the dominion theologians, the people that believe that the church is the embodiment of the kingdom of God. We don't believe that. That's not true. That's not biblical. So you can throw that one out, but I did want to introduce you to it because you'll hear it. The other two which are possible, and both of them I'm comfortable with, and then I'll give you a third that I'm most comfortable with, some think Jesus was speaking of his own transfiguration and the glory that would be manifest when he was transfigured before Peter, James, and John. That when he was transfigured, Peter, James, and John saw him in all of his glory. They saw him in his kingdom, in, in, in his kingdom glory, and so they saw the kingdom of God before they died. Uh, some think Jesus was speaking of his resurrected person. So Jesus is the first fruits of the dead. Jesus is the first one to receive a resurrected body. That resurrected body um, would be a, 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 a kingdom body, right? It's fitted for Christ's kingdom. And so there's a, a, a bit of the kingdom of God. Some believe that that's what is being spoken of there. Both of these final two are quite reasonable. Uh, and I think that, that that second one is the most reasonable of those. And again, I'm, I'm going to take you in another direction in just a moment. I think that Jesus, speaking of his resurrected person, that, that his resurrected body is that bit of the kingdom, and so that when Jesus appears before them in the resurrected body, uh, they are seeing a glimpse of the kingdom. They're seeing that kingdom body. I, that makes sense to me. And it's only some and not all, because there was one man that did not see Jesus in his resurrected body. And that would be Judas Iscariot. But more importantly, in my mind here, is that idea of death. I tell you the truth, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death. The word death here can function both literally and spiritually. 
literally, figuratively, excuse me, materially or spiritually. The most simple explanation of Jesus' statement here is that some under the sound of his voice would not physically die, and that's what we just talked about. However, it's also possible that Jesus was speaking spiritually here, metaphorically, figuratively, that there were some standing before him who would not experience their death to self. Remember, Jesus just talked about dying to self, taking up your cross and following him. What if it is that what Jesus was actually saying here was not some of you won't physically die until you see the kingdom. What if Jesus was saying some of you will not see taste of death until you see the kingdom of God. Some of you will not taste of the death to self that I spoke of in the last verse. Until you see the kingdom of God. And while the second idea is not a very prevalent view, that Jesus is speaking metaphorically, when you think of the context that we're in, Jesus saying that you need to die to self if you want to gain life, Contextually, that's pretty reasonable. And in fact, we know that there was at least one instance, one man who would not believe until he saw Jesus' resurrected body, if that's still the kingdom. And that's Thomas, right? Who said, I will not believe until I can put my hands on his side and see his nail-pierced hands. And so those are all some various theories for whatever they're worth. I do like that metaphorical theory. Um, I think that contextually that makes the most sense, but I'm certainly comfortable with the idea of the transfiguration or simply um, seeing Jesus uh, and before they died as well. And that finishes our exposition today. I'd like to apply today by going in just one direction. I'd like to make one statement, and we will have several points underneath it, but those points are more um, clarification points. They're, they're questions that we need to ask. And the point that we're going to make is this. To acknowledge Christ is to take up your cross, is to lose your life, is to be unashamed, is to be born again. Jesus is not speaking about a large uh, array of topics here. He's not jumping from one topic to another as he... Uh, clarifies his identity as the Christ, and then he clarifies um, the difference between who they say he is and who the disciples say he is. And then as he says, take up your cross and follow me, and then he says, to be ashamed of me, I will be ashamed of you. And, and all of this, he's not jumping from topic to topic, from concept to concept. It's one thought. He's telling his followers that the one who acknowledges Christ is the one who will take up his cross and follow Christ on the road of self-rejection, which means he is dying to the world in order to live unto God, which means he is not ashamed of the words or person of Christ. Now, obviously, that doesn't happen all at once. The moment you accept Jesus Christ, you do not completely die to all of your sin, right? All of your sin doesn't just go away. You do not immediately make Jesus the Lord of every aspect of your life. That's, that's, all, all that takes is any one person in this room who says, yes, I'm a believer, and we can prove that point. But what it does mean is that when you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior, you will be on the road of self-denial. You have denied self enough to accept Jesus Christ exclusively for your salvation and repent of any dead works that you might be trusting in to get yourself to heaven. 
And then you start taking the path of self-denial, whereas Jesus puts his thumb on things in your life and says, I want that, and I want that, and I want that, and I want that. You know it, and you are inclined to give it to him. It doesn't mean you're going to be perfect. It doesn't mean you're going to do it all. But that's what it means to be born again. You have set yourself aside, and you have taken up the mantle of Christ. And we see this all throughout the New Testament. And so let's walk through several questions about this this morning. Things that we need to answer in order to clarify this concept, this point. And the first question we're going to ask is this. Can a believer misunderstand Jesus' identity? Can you still be saved if you misunderstand Jesus' identity? Or if you don't fully understand Jesus' identity? Yes, a believer can lack a full understanding of Jesus' identity and still be a believer, but he cannot deny Jesus' identity, and there is a difference. If you do not acknowledge Jesus Christ to be God in the flesh, to be the Savior of mankind, to be the self-proclaimed and proven Son of God, you're not a believer. If you do not acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross and rose again in victory over sin and the grave, you are not a believer. You're not in the faith. You are not a part of the church. You are not in Christ. There were many in that day who saw Jesus as a great prophet of old, who saw Jesus as a good man, who saw Jesus maybe as even having been miraculously risen from the dead, but that isn't enough. And it is impossible to be born again if you deny the essence of Jesus' character and identity. But that doesn't mean you necessarily will understand everything about who Jesus is or understand it perfectly. Let's consider the child somewhere between five and eight years old. They're young, and their capacity to comprehend the essential nature of Jesus is not as great as an adult. So they hear the gospel, they recognize they're sinners, they understand that they uh, are lost and on their way to hell, they don't want to go to hell, they know that they're a sinner, they recognize that sin offends God, they want to be on the right side of God, they hear that there's a free gift, and they gladly receive it. And we dare not say that they can't. Because Jesus said, suffer the little children to come unto me. However, it is quite possible that that child does not fully comprehend the identity of Jesus Christ as you or I would. And as a matter of fact, I dare say that you and I don't comprehend the identity of Jesus Christ perhaps as well as we ought either. In fact, I remember taking all the way into my college years a gross misunderstanding of the character of Jesus Christ, though I was without question a believer. So the problem is not when a person does not fully understand, but rather when a person does understand and then rejects that which he understands. So we would believe that a child who has made a genuine profession of faith will, without fail, as they grow up and learn, acknowledge Jesus Christ's identity and character to the extent that they learn it. And every time they learn something new, they assume that, they acknowledge that, they accept it for what it is because they're believers. And if you accept Christ, then you accept everything that He is, and you will do so through the testimony of the Holy Spirit on your heart. And if a person is outwardly overtly, unashamedly denying various aspects of Christ's character, of his identity, then no, he's not a believer. If they deny that Jesus is the Son of God, they're not a believer. If they deny Jesus died on the cross, they're not a believer. If they deny that Jesus rose again in victory over the grave, they're not a believer. Now, can they be fooled? Yes, and this is what we're talking about. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes to a church that has been debating the merits of the resurrection. 
He says, look, if Jesus isn't risen from the grave, then you're dead in your sins. There were some confused people there. He took care of that. When they, when the confusion subsides, when they hear the right preaching, they either accepted that right preaching and realigned their thoughts with Christ, or they rejected it. And if they rejected it, then they're not a believer. Question number two. Can a believer live for self? Can a believer be carnal? Yes. A believer can be carnal. We'll see this. Jesus' teaching about dying to self and following Him is not just something He'll talk to in regards to salvation. In Luke 14, we will read this in regard to discipleship. Verse 27, Jesus says, And whosoever doth not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Jesus is now talking about discipleship there. He's talking about salvation in Luke 9. He's talking about discipleship in Luke 14. A disciple can be carnal. A disciple can not be walking with the Lord. Salvation is a free gift. Salvation is simple. It requires no work. It requires no effort. It does not demand that a person reform himself in order to partake. The essence of accepting that the, uh, the free gift of salvation does not expect that a man be perfect, but it does expect that a man acknowledge Jesus to be God and so by extension acknowledge that Jesus' way is the right way, the only way. It doesn't mean he's doing it, but it means he knows it. And this is the child who knows what he's supposed to do, but he doesn't do it. It's not because he doesn't know. It's not because he's not a child. It's just because he has chosen to do something else because he's selfish. Man need do nothing, man need change nothing in order to be saved, but if that man is unwilling to be changed, if that man is unwilling to yield his will, if he rejects the authority of Jesus Christ as his authority, then he is not a believer. That being said, a believer can live for self. A believer can be carnal. A believer is capable of any sin, which... An unbeliever is capable of performing. His sin nature was not cut off at salvation. Its power was simply broken. All throughout the New Testament, we find carnal believers. In fact, 1 Corinthians is a book written exclusively to correct carnal believers. If carnal Christianity was not possible, then why is so much of the New Testament devoted to teaching us how to live this Christian life? Why is so much of the New Testament devoted to teaching us not to live carnally, to reject the former life? Wouldn't that be default if we could not be carnal? And this is a claim among many Reformed theologians that the natural outworking of being elect unto salvation and of having your faith given to you by God is that if God is going to give you faith, then He's not going to give you imperfect faith and so you can't be a carnal Christian. But that's not what the Bible teaches. If spirituality is the default of the Christian life, if sanctification, the lordship of Christ over our lives, and a general and unwavering desire to pursue life of Christ are defaults to the believer, then why is so much of the New Testament devoted to teaching us how to do it and telling us why we should? Idols are not foreign to the Christian experience, though they are foreign to Christ. Carnality is not foreign to the Christian experience, though they are foreign to Christ. A believer can live for self. A believer can operate under the wrong motives. But if a man has never come to the point where his understanding of the gospel has caused him to acknowledge his need and acknowledge that Christ's way is the only way, then he's not a believer. 
Question number three. Can a believer experience the fear of man? If a man is ashamed of Jesus Christ, the Bible says Jesus will be ashamed of him on the day of judgment. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 32 and 33, Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Very similar to what we read in Luke 9. In 2 Timothy 2, 12, Paul says, If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. John says in 1 John 2.23, Whosoever denieth the Son, the same hath not the Father, but he that acknowledgeth the Son hath the Father also. The man who denies the Son does not have the Father, for indeed the Son is the way to the Father. The Son and the Father are one. This verse, These verses remind us that a man cannot have an exclusively secret faith. There is no such thing as a Christian who has an exclusively secret faith. If a man goes through life in true and overt denial of Jesus and his words, he is not a believer. If he says, well, I believe it inwardly, but I'm not going to show it outwardly. I'm going to deny it with my voice. I'm going to deny it with my actions because of fill in the blank. The Bible says this man is not a believer. Christianity does not work this way. There is no such thing as a closet Christian. But take note. This is different from the believer who lives in a persecuted region and who is not declaring his faith openly. There's a difference between a secret faith, a closet faith, which doesn't really exist, and one who is being careful who he tells for his own safety. The believer that goes out into the world and keeps his identity under wraps He doesn't do wrong. He doesn't deny Christ in action. He doesn't deny Christ in word. He just doesn't bring it up. And then he comes together with his brethren in a safe place and they worship together. He carefully shares his faith with those with whom he trusts not to report him. He restrains himself often through great frustration for the sake of safety. But on the day that, and this is the difference... The man with the secret faith is the man that's, that when somebody says, are you a Christian? He says, no, 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 I'm not a Christian. Are you a follower of Christ? No, 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 I'm not a follower of Christ. Is Christ the Son of God? No, 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 I don't believe that. Because he's trying to preserve himself. The persecuted Christian who's not openly declaring his faith, on the day that he gets caught, on the day that his life is on the line, on the day that, that he's going to go to prison or that he's going to be killed and they say, do you believe Christ is the Son of God? He says, yes, with all of his heart. That's the difference. Can a believer experience the fear of man? Yes, he can. The fear of man is a powerful thing and Christians are not beyond its influence. So the child is in a group of children and they're doing something wrong and he does not correct them. Because he's afraid of what they might say. That's the fear of man. He has not denied Christ. He's simply given into peer pressure. He's faltered in a moment of weakness. His intent was not to refuse Christ. He just needs to learn how to be bold. Water cooler at work. Lady at Walmart. You're afraid of what someone might say to you so you don't speak up for Christ. That's different than when somebody says, is Christ the Son of the living God? You say, absolutely not. There's a difference there, isn't there? 
It's the same reason why we won't give the tract to the person at Walmart or why we won't strike up a spiritual conversation with our neighbor. It's the fear of man. It's not that you're ashamed of Christ. It's that you're afraid of man. You're not ashamed of Christ. You're just afraid of man. And you wouldn't be the only one to struggle with this. I struggle with this. And in fact, Paul had to exhort Timothy in this regard too. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verses 6-8. through 8. Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God which is in thee by the putting on of hands. Before God hath not given us the spirit of fear. That word fear there is not the typical word for fear in the scriptures. It's actually a word which means timidity. But of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me as prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel. So Paul says, don't be timid, Timothy, because there's no need to be timid, because we need to be bold for Christ. He's not saying, Timothy, you might lose your salvation here, or Timothy, you might not be saved, He's because you might have some timidity or fear of man, and you know. He's simply saying, don't have it, Because we need to be bold for Christ. In fact, Paul would ask for prayer for his own boldness. Ephesians chapter 6, verses 18 to 20. Praying always with all prayer and supplication. Remember, this is right after the armor of God. In the Spirit and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints and for me, that utterance may be given unto me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in bonds, that therein I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. Can a believer experience the fear of man? Yes. And if you do, you're not alone. If you've ever faltered in your testimony for Christ, you're not alone. But if you flatly will not, will not, if you refuse to publicly identify with Jesus Christ, if you will not get baptized as Christ has commanded us as a public testimony of your faith, if you will not say, yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of the living God when someone asks you directly, if you will not claim Christ and His shame and reproach when directly confronted, if you will not stand for Christ when a man puts a line in the sand and says, who's over that line, who's on the side of Christ, then you're not a believer. And as an extension of this, let's just ask one more question. Can a believer lose Christ through denial? Can a believer lose Christ, right? Jesus says, I will disown you. So if a person has done this, if they flatly deny Christ. And let me begin by simply saying this. If you have ever had Christ, you cannot lose him. We've defended this before. We'll defend it just briefly here. John 5, 24. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death into life. If you're passed from death into life at the moment that you believe on Him, if you shall not come into condemnation, those are some pretty serious words. If you have everlasting life, look, if you have everlasting life, then you have it. If you can lose it, then you never had it. Because it's not everlasting if you lost it. So you never had it, right? So you can't say, I had everlasting life and then I did something to lose it. It can't happen that way. You either have everlasting life or you never had it to begin with. I wish I could take you to First uh, Peter chapter 1, which has a fantastic passage on this, but we're just not going to for sake of time. Can a believer lose Christ through denial? No. If he straightly denies the person and work of Christ, 
if he denies Christ on the day where it's put before him, the line is the sand and draw, uh, the line in the sand is drawn. If he doesn't step over that line onto Christ's side, well, then simply put, he was never a believer to begin with. If you falter through the fear of man, then all that proves is that you're human. Welcome to the club. To acknowledge Christ is to take up your cross, is to lose your life, is to be unashamed, is to be born again. My purpose in this message certainly is not to cast doubt on those who are believers. And yet there's something healthy about you casting doubt on your own salvation and making your election sure. Make sure you are in the faith. You do yourself a disservice if you're so afraid of the answer that you just avoid the question, am I saved? You do yourself a disservice if you just don't want to think about it and you'll hope for the best because on the day that you stand before God, you don't want to wonder if you're going to hear those words, well done, thou good and faithful servant. And you don't have to wonder. Whom do men say that I am? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's it. That's what it takes. Believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Believe that he is who he says he is. Believe that he did what he said he did. That you are a sinner. That you cannot get yourself to heaven. That there's nothing you can do. That Jesus died on the cross. That he was buried. That he rose again the third day. That he, uh, in victory over the grave. That he sits at the right hand of the Father. That he's coming back for you. That he can give you eternal life because he has eternal life. That he is God. That what he says goes. That his authority is the authority. That his way is the way. And if you believe that, I'm not saying that you're living all of that. But what I'm saying is if you believe that, if you've accepted that, if, if, if you are that one who declares, yes, he is the Christ, the son of the living God, and you have assumed that, and you've taken up your cross to follow him, and you acknowledge Him to be the way, the truth, and the life, and it's not your way, and it's not what you want, then you're a believer. Do you face conviction over sin? Are you bearing the fruit of the Spirit? Do you love the brethren? These are the conditions, these are the tests given in Scripture, and we need to be taking those tests. You don't have to base your salvation on whether or not you said a prayer umpteen number of years ago or whether or not mom or dad assures you that you're doing okay, that you that you said a prayer at one time even though you can't remember it. Don't trust that. That's foolish. Don't just throw your hands up and say, I wonder if I'm going to make it. Question yourself and make sure you're in the faith. Because you can There's not a person in this room, there's not a person in this world who cannot accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and go to heaven. He is who He says He is. The question is, do you believe it? Are you like those many who say, yep, Jesus is a good man? You might even say, yep, Jesus is the Son of God, Jesus is God. You you say those things, but you don't believe it. Yes, Jesus died on the cross for my sins. You say those things, but then you go home and you try to earn your way to heaven. Yes, Jesus is the ultimate authority, but you actually don't believe what he says. You actually don't believe in his way. Are you in the faith? Let's close in prayer. 